So, in theory, we are live with Verga. Hopefully, everybody can hear us fine. Um, maybe you can just give, give us some feedback whether you can hear the audio fine and you can see us fine, but I think it should be okay. So, um, this is going to be Q&A number nine, I believe, in the Sustainable Self-Development Group. And we collected eight or nine of your questions this time, and we are going to answer these with Verga. And just a quick announcement, I guess, for the beginning, uh, at, at a, as of this time, so 26th August 2018, there is about four hours left of our pre-sale campaign for this um, training and nutritional product that we just put together. So if you haven't already, and if you're seeing this live, then I guess we recommend that you jump on the opportunity. So that's a little bit of housekeeping thing for the beginning. Uh, Berge, do you want anything to add to that little plug that I had in the beginning? Uh, no, I think that's a good thing to just get in there. I've been working really hard to uh, to get the material out there and edit and just make it uh, as good as possible. So this is going to be pretty close to my leaving my legacy uh, of uh, my sustainable approach to training nutrition and also the mindset and, and daily habits uh, kind of uh, side of things. So it's, uh, in my opinion, a, a very good system. <laughs> yeah no that's awesome yeah and uh yeah really if you enjoyed hearing about the nutrition and training principles that we've been talking about in these q a's and also a lot of the podcast episodes and solo videos then you will definitely enjoy this program so give that a go so if you are interested and you haven't checked it out already then head over to sustainableselfdevelopment.com and then you can slash ssd program actually that's where you can access the program directly and uh, as of now, you can get it at a lowered pre-sale price. So uh, that's all the shameless plugging for the beginning. And with that, let's get into this uh, Q&A. So question number one is uh, about drop sets and how that could be implemented in a training program uh, smartly. So basically, the question goes, could a drop set template access some of the benefits implicated in myo reps? Uh, for example, maximal recruitment and fatigue of the motor units and muscle fibers with heavy load? and then using the, the consecutive drop in weight as a rest pause strategy. Uh, so what do we think about drop sets? Yeah, drop sets are a viable strategy. The, the problem is that as you drop the load, the mechanical tension also drops. So um, like my reps really shine uh, on loads from like 40% of one rep max to 70, 75% of one rep max. So basically loads you can do for at least 10 to 12 reps. And if you start dropping the load by maybe 10 to 20% from that, it doesn't take more than maybe one or two drop sets. And then you're into the like loading air, loading range that's not as effective. And, and doing a MIRAP set at the same load will provide both a metabolic stimulus, which is important, but also maintain mechanical stimulus. Whereas with drop sets, you're, you're kind of sacrificing the mechanical stimulus uh, in order to get more metabolic stimulus. So in, in my opinion, in, in my experience, I, I tend to think that my reps are more effective. But but yeah, for sure, there's there's some overlap there. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, the default should be my reps and um, yeah, drop sets, I guess. Is, is there any is there like a best time to implement that perhaps like in your opinion, like what would be a situation in which it, it could be viable? Because it seems like it's kind of in a no man's land. Yeah, you're doing more total reps. And, and contrary to what most tend to think, uh, they think that, well, heavy loads are the most fatiguing. But uh, in, in actuality, the doing 
a lot of reps at light loads are the most fatiguing and takes more time to recover from. And so, like if if your joints are hurting, if if uh, something doesn't feel right, and uh, you know, doing my reps is really intensive, which is why it's a foundation of the SSD training program, um, the f the first part of the cycle anyway. Um, <clears throat> And if you, for any reason, don't feel up for doing a MyRep set a day or, or doing several sets of the same load, then a drop set is a very viable uh, strategy to use. And it can also be used as sort of a like a finisher at the end of a heavy set if you want. But just keep in mind that the, there is some, you know, there's some stuff to suggest that there are redundancy in these pathways. So if you already have like a high mechanical tension, heavy load set to stimulate hypertrophy, if you add too much metabolic stimulus to that, then it, it kind of detracts from the main signal. And, and so, you know, we, we don't have like any good data to show that, but but I think that focusing on each separate pathway uh, is is uh, more productive than, than trying to sort of like the shotgun approach and just do everything all at once. It sounds good in theory, but in practice, it, it doesn't uh, really work that well. Sure. Cool. So, so yeah, I guess the, the conclusion or, or the answer to that question is that use drop sets whenever you feel like heavy loads are too brutal for you and, and you just need some unloading and maybe you're short on time and you just want to get in like a quick workout. So drop sets are a quick way to just add some extra volume. Right. Awesome. Cool. So uh, next question is about shift work. And we sort of covered this in the previous Q&A when someone asked about getting good workouts with very little sleep. But uh, what about just inconsistencies in circadian rhythms? So if someone has some days, let's say, four or five days out of the week where they have a regular rhythm during their days and they wake up at the same time, go to bed at the same time and have meals at regular times, but then have a couple of days when everything is just completely off because of job or whatever, active social life or what have you. Um, to what extent do you think someone can combat these negative effects and how frequently and or how much can someone deviate from their normal rhythms and not be too harmful? Well, I actually just did a video on this since it's part of the SSD system uh, handling the consequences of shift work because there are real consequences to constantly shifting your uh, circadian rhythm around. So how much you can deviate from it? I would say that optimally you wouldn't deviate more than maybe two hours from your normal bedtime. That's the that's like the optimal. But how much you can deviate without it affecting your recovery that's going to be totally individual since um, your your resilience, your ability to handle stress is both genetic and, and a function of how optimal your lifestyle is already and how healthy you are. So if you are unhealthy and you have a lot of stuff going on outside of the, those circadian rhythm uh, challenges, like if, if you have other life stressors, then you will not be able to handle uh, shifts in circadian rhythms very well, so I would I would do as much as possible to um, to maintain a consistent schedule. And if it's only like for one or two days out of the week, then like you you could you know skip breakfast and and maybe just have a small snack late at night when you're up. Um, but try as much as possible to stick to the normal routine and then just sort of you know do do the deviation that needs to be deviated. But but. Uh, try to reduce uh, the deviation as much as possible and get back into your normal rhythm as, as quickly as possible. 
And we know that the, the main input to the circadian rhythm is light and daylight and lack of such, and it's movement and staying active, and it's uh, food. So using intermittent fasting strategies, or should we say time-restricted feeding strategies, combined with as strong light as possible and as dark uh, bedroom as possible, will sort of provide a stronger input to, to the circadian rhythm and, and reset things much faster. Awesome. Cool. I think uh, there's nothing to add here. Um, cool. So our next question is about fast versus slow protein. So um, a lot of people have different opinions on this. So um, what do you think about the implications of fast versus slow digesting proteins in uh, post-workout meals and in, you know, depending on when you eat them during the day. So when you eat them first thing in the morning or late at night, how much do you think these things matter in the grand scheme of things? I generally don't recommend fast proteins at all. Uh, obviously, there are some studies showing that whey protein or, or something, you know, like that will enhance muscle protein synthesis, uh, like the, the anabolic uh, process, uh, more than slower proteins or, or uh, slower digest digestible proteins in the post-workout period but over time in the long term uh, you know slower proteins and actually normal meals tend to be the best strategy simply because um, uh, actual muscle growth is a function of not just the muscle protein synthesis but also reducing muscle protein breakdown and so slower digestible uh, proteins tend to maintain or reduce muscle uh, protein breakdown so the net result is, is um, in most cases, better. So I would just go with normal meals and not worry about fast versus slow digestive um, proteins. And even for the final meal, if you make the final meal, let's say I, I prefer it around six or seven o'clock, uh, like two to three, four hours before bedtime. And that's like a large meal of 60 grams of protein. And it's a whole food meal that will digest over the next 12 hours and supply amino acids. So it's not like you need to have a casein shake pre-bed or anything. And there was just a recent study comparing the pre-bed casein uh, shake versus just having that protein shake earlier in the day. And the group that had the shake earlier in the day actually had better results than the one uh, than the group ingesting it close to bedtime. So I think it's more about total protein and, and uh, just eating whole food meals and not being concerned about you know, quick versus, versus slow proteins. Yeah, would, would, would your recommendation change a little bit maybe if someone is working out later in the evening? No, not really. No, <laughs> no I mean, if you're working out late in the evening, maybe for, you know, if you eat like a large meal that's hard to digest, then that could affect your sleep, but so could working out late. Um, and so just sort of eat to comfortable fullness, but meals late in the evening should not be large simply because it will be harder for you to digest them. So, and, and still I wouldn't use a fast digestive, uh, digested uh, protein source at that time uh, because you have the nightly fast to, to be concerned about. So I would still use like slower digested uh, proteins for the final meal. Sure thing. Uh, cool. So next question was a little bit of a tricky one to untangle, but basically the question about question is about deconditioning and the the concept of 
the tissue's response to resistance training is dependent upon the condition of the tissue at the time or the sensitivity of the tissue at the time. And um, basically the question asks, if I understand it well, is that if uh, the tissue when is maximally sensitive, then it can benefit from lower loads, then is it even necessary to increase the weight over time when training if you can just always resensitize the tissue to be maximally responsive to training? So could you just squat the same amount of weight and grow equally as well if you always manage to resensitize in between training bouts? In, in theory, yes, you could. But uh, see, in, in the real world, <clears throat> you uh, as you add more muscle mass and as you follow an effective training program, you are going to get stronger as well. So if you just keep reusing those same loads, you won't be working close to the fatigue point or failure point and thus achieve uh, effective training. So, you know, if you just keep doing 100 kilos for 10 reps and you're eventually able to, to do 20 reps for that load, then that's not going to be a very potent growth stimulus. So, so yeah, in, in theory, the, the deconditioning process uh, enables you to use both lower loads and low, lower volumes at the start of a training cycle and still respond almost like a newbie. But <clears throat> the so-called protective or the so-called repeated belt effect, the RBE, which is a protective uh, adaptation uh, that, the, that the body mounts uh, in response to training. So the muscle doesn't just grow larger and the nervous system doesn't just get more efficient. And, you know, you have cardiovascular adaptations and you have glycogen and, and capillarization and blood flow and blah, blah, blah. Um, but there's also a protective effect so that you would not suffer damage from uh, uh, subsequent uh, training bouts. And so this accumulates over time, over a training cycle. And, and so what we attempt to do with the two two week rest period is to reverse some of those protective adaptations. But you can't completely eliminate them. You know, you're only reversing some of them and, and there's going to be actual connective tissue and there's going to be some neural adaptations and stuff. So, so you're, you're kind of just taking a couple of step, steps back, but you're not all the way back to newbie status at all. Um, so, so Recycling the loads is definitely possible, and I have done this and seen continued growth. And that's also what we have seen in a couple of recent studies. We're just taking that time off. Um, you know, it, it seems it seems to show that you need at least nine to ten days, and and that perhaps the two week, like fourteen to sixteen day point, is is uh, optimal um, to to achieve sufficient resensitization, but without losing actual muscle. Um, and so you get, you experience rapid growth initially, even with really light loads. But um, um, if you don't keep sort of increasing the loads over time, as you get stronger, you will eventually uh, run into the issue I just mentioned that you're working far below your, your actual max. Yeah, and I guess people would actually feel this in practice because the weights would just feel easy. Like you would notice that you're not even approaching failure ever, which is which is normally in the beginning perhaps of the training cycle. But over time, you would notice that like you're just not pushing yourself and you would intuitively increase the weight. So um, and, and perhaps this uh, so there is a follow up part of this question, which goes so that if, if we are not that concerned with strength, because um, we are not necessarily talking about strength training, although now you just answered the question that we do still do increase the load over time, but then how do we actually gauge progress? Like, do you just um, take measurements, look at body fat percentage or some kind of muscle mass proxies like DEXA or like, how do you actually gauge progress on this training program? But I guess still the load on the bar is the main indicator, right? 
Yeah, I mean, load on the bar, although Jeremy Lennick has uh, uh, rightly so claimed that strength and muscle growth aren't tightly correlated, you know, so, so the process of growing muscle through training will increase your strength and the process of gaining strength will eventually lead to some muscle growth, but it's possible to train for one versus the other and, and sort of reduce the contribution from each. Uh, so, so strength is one proxy, but shouldn't be the only one. Uh, but, but tracking body weight and tracking body fat percentage through some like body fat calipers or DEXA or, or even bio, uh, what's it called? Bioelectric impedance uh, measurements, which is, you know, kind of sketchy in, in, in its accuracy, but over time, you, you should have some physical measurements to, to confirm that, that you're actually growing muscle. Yeah, you can't just rely on strength. Yeah, fair enough. Cool. Um, okay, so we have an interesting question about weighted carries or loaded carry. So um, the person who asked the question, unfortunately, I don't have the name here, uh, had the impression that you don't include loaded carries in your programs. And the question is, do you still any utility for those if you're not a strongman or CrossFit competitor or something like that? Uh, this is obviously a Dan John fan, and uh, I'm a big fan of him myself. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm just going to say, and I'll, I'll probably, you know, now that you say it, I'll probably add it uh, to, to the uh, like summary section of, of the program feel free to play around with stuff, with mobility, with prehab work, with activation work, with loaded carries, with uh, strongman type exercises and, and, and whatever stuff you want outside of the main program, uh, as long as you don't sort of turn that into its own kind of thing. I, I mean, um, I, I do think there are some definite benefits if you're an athlete and if um, if you have some, some uh, bottlenecks in your physique or in your um, in, in your body so if you have if you lack core strength and stability then for sure loaded carries are awesome i do them once in a while when, whenever possible but um again it, it's, it's it's probably a great thing for athletes and then john being one that coaches a lot of athletes that's um, you know that that old saying that if you're uh if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And Dan John is one of the, you know, one of my favorite people in the industry. But I don't consider them as magical as he uh, tends to think they are. And so it's it's not something I consider essential to every program. But it but it's a it's a fun thing to play around with, with and it's challenging. And and uh, I, I do think it has a place in in uh, just enjoying the training process. So if you enjoy them and you find them fun and challenging. You know, feel free to add them, but I don't think they're essential for uh, a strength or a muscle growth program or just looking good naked. For conditioning and for strength and for athletes, for sure, I do think they have a higher priority uh, than others. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, cool. So uh, next question is a popular topic. So in the last Q&A, you touched upon practices for lowering the body fat, body's settling point for body fat. So uh, making lower body fat percentages more durable and, and comfortable over time. So um, could you just elaborate on these techniques, if you would? <laughs> <laughs> well, I elaborate on these techniques in the course. That's what the whole system is about. Uh, you know, the nutritional approach is about lowering the settling point. Uh, and, and so instead of forcing lower body fat percentage through dieting and re restriction, 
you make proper food choices and implement some strategies. So for instance, ketogenic diets and zero carb diets have uh, this uh, certain ability or, or uh, I would say very noticeable ability to, to lower uh, the brain's, um, what should I say, um, perception of body fat percentage. So you, you tend to comfortably just and spontaneously just eat less food, even though you don't, um, even though you're not hungry, even though you're not restricting yourself. So you can eat to fullness and still spontaneously just eat less food. Um, and so depending on how broken the system is, I mean, we know that uh, very obese people have like a broken uh, system in the brain that, you know, it, it, it sort of, they can eat several thousand calories and their brain still tells them that they need to eat more. And some people experience this with uh, so-called trigger foods that when they eat a certain food, a, a certain combination of flavors, just makes you go crazy. You can't stop yourself. You, you, it's uncontrollable hunger. And even though you're physically full, uh, you, you still can't stop yourself from, from just craving uh, more calories and more foods. So, so yeah, there are, you know, various techniques to do this. And, and in generally, in general, there, um, there's the whole lifestyle and stress uh, management approach where you have an optimal circadian rhythm. So that's like a very fundamental part of this. Uh, regular sleep and wake cycles, regular meal timings as you entrain this as much as possible. So uh, specific techniques to manage your stress levels and stress really plays into the whole adipostat as it's called, uh, the brain's perception of how much body fat uh, you should have, but also how much food you should eat. And we all know that lack of sleep, you know, you're, you're just starving the next day, even though you don't really need those calories. Um, and also strategic application of uh, various uh, dietary approaches, such as like a zero carb or, or even a ketogenic diet, and just making sure you're getting the full spectrum of micronutrients that the body needs. You need the protein and you need the micronutrients to tell the brain that it has all the, the, the nutrients it needs and thus it will sort of um, function normally and you won't get those um, abnormal hunger signals. So, so that's as elaborate as I can make it for this uh, Q&A session. It's, it's uh, way more than that, but you know, it, it takes a couple of hours to, to go through it. So we don't have time for that here. It's beyond the scope of this Q&A. Yeah, so perhaps in one sentence, uh, it could be something like, be well fed and provide the appropriate fuel for your body so that you're actually are you're actually well fed but then create the environment in which the brain can actually sense that you're well fed something like that avoid starving yourself um and and beware of uh, the palatability and, and satiety of uh, the foods that you choose that would be some very important strategies to implement awesome Cool. So uh, we have an, the next question, which is an interesting one about when when to stop dieting further or when, what is a point at which it's probably a pretty good idea to not try to get leaner. So uh, Martin Burkhan recommended a number, which is your height in centimeters minus 110. So I guess for a 180 centimeter male, it would be like 70 kilos, at which point he would not attempt to get any leaner. So would you have any kind of general recommendations like that, either either numerical or just some cues that someone can look at? And that's a good indication that they should try to focus on building muscle as opposed to try to get leaner. Well, if you've been following the, the, the last Q&As, you know that I'm not a fan of cutting and bulking at all. So 
Um, and I don't have any numerical uh, guidelines that I can provide anyone with because it's going to vary tremendously. But but obviously, if if you're you know if you've been dieting for three four months or more and and you're just feeling miserable and, and everything indicates that that you are feeling miserable, you you lack energy and motivation, you you have cravings, uh, then for sure stop cutting. I think that's the best indicator you can you can have. If 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 you're not progressing anymore. If if you're feeling cold and, and you know you're freezing when everyone else is warm, you have all the symptoms of being subclinical uh, hypothyroid, and, and the body has now perceived you being in an extended calorie deficit, and it's switching on a whole evolutionary program that's that's in place to preserve your life. You know, it's not interested in whether you want to look good for the beach. It's it's actually preventing you from um, from dropping body weight further because you have been doing things probably too extreme and, and and or you haven't been taking care of your other life, lifestyle habits that you know we, we touched upon in, in the in the previous question yeah yeah that's fair enough cool so um yeah then i guess for a lot of guys just a practical thing like a lot of guys are obsessed with getting abs but uh when everybody around you is screaming at you that you're already way too skinny then, you know, a lot of times is the environment. Some people don't really understand your goals and may have a different perspective on these things. But if a lot of people are saying that, maybe they have a point. Because a, a lot of times that happened in my life and looking back at some of those pictures, like it's cringe-worthy how skinny I starved myself. So just something to keep in mind. <laughs> uh, cool. So and the next question was a little bit of a difficult one again to untangle. But basically it's the question of a lot of recent evidence pointed towards uh, the notion of you know, multiple training days a week for the same muscle group might be better than just one, but not by as much as we thought earlier. So what do you think of this one? And if that is the case, that one training session could be almost as good as multiple training sessions, like why do you think is the reason behind that? I think if if you're using untrained uh, and barely trained, uh, you can see better gains. And if you're not accounting for the swellings in not actual tissue growth, which takes more than eight to 12 weeks to be able to measure with any degree of uh, like a high degree of, uh, of accuracy, then for sure training the muscle once per week will lead to so much swelling and, and also partly they condition the muscle between each bout that, you know, comparing once a week to twice a week, twice a week still wins out, but, but there's not a huge uh, difference, uh, especially if you're not well trained. But as you get better trained, as you have more RBE, as we discussed earlier, um, as, you, as the body gets more efficient at switching on the various mechanisms, but still requires mo more of a stimulus or a more consistent stimulus, higher frequencies definitely win out over lower fr uh, frequencies. And, and um, I would uh, refer to Greg Knuckles' uh, latest uh, article on that, because it, it just, if, if you look at meta reviews, then depending on the statistical methods they used and the inclusion criteria and whether they accounted for training status, whether they accounted for total training volume, uh, training level, training age, uh, just subject individuality, then you can manipulate these numbers either way. So um, I, I, I think Greg's uh, analysis was more on point and it showed that for both muscle growth and strength, higher frequencies are usually better, where three to four times per week consistently was shown to be more effective than once or twice a week as you get more trained. 
So, so that's my uh, perspective on it and, and what I have been uh, advocating for the last uh, few years with uh, great success, I should add. Cool. Yeah, well, believe it or not, this was actually the last question that I selected here. I thought that, that we would need a bit more time to go through over these. So maybe um, just a follow-up question off of that. Uh, because we managed to create ourselves a bit of a time buffer. But uh, what do you think just recently someone linked to a good post recently from Menno and uh, he talked about the implication of higher frequency training. And it's interesting because he seems to be not as big of a proponent of high frequency training as he was before. He still employs it in his training practices, but he doesn't think that it's as much of a, like a magic bullet as he thought earlier. Uh, and one thing that he wrote there, which I reflected on, is that uh, training frequency is not an independent injury risk factor, only total training volume is. And I commented that in my experience, there is just something inherently more injurious, or at least there is something about high, high frequency training that at least in some people, in certain body parts, can just lead to more aches and pains and niggles. Uh, so wh what do you think about this? Yeah, for sure. I mean, in, in any given individual, uh, genes, lifestyle, and, and, and your individual response, even your nutrition, especially your nutrition, I would say, uh, can increase inflammation uh, more uh, than it will in others. So, so just doing like one set to failure, for instance, can can increase uh, inflammation and also um, like connective tissue health and connective tissue remodeling takes much longer in some individuals. I have the same problem. So, um, even just doing one set and submax like not to failure uh, after like four to five days of daily training, and, and I do this consistently over time, I tend to accumulate some various aches, aches and pains. So, so my connective tissue just can't keep up with the demands uh, and the adaptability of the muscle. So, so again, you need to take a systems approach to, to training and, and consider everything involved, not just what you can observe in the muscle tissue itself, but also bones, connective tissue, joints, and your overall uh, lifestyle stress. So um, I, I reserve the high frequencies like four times per week or more for the most advanced clients that have everything in place and, and have the, the physiology to tolerate that frequency. And, and, and that's not, that's, that hasn't been a lot throughout the years. Some of the more advanced elite powerlifters that are young and healthy can get away with it and, and thrive on it. Um, but um, again, the, the most sustainable approach will have a training frequency around two to three times a week for most people. And, and some, a few can get away with four times per week. But um, if you want to do high frequency training, that should usually focus on the metabolic component. So, so doing occlusion training or even submaximal MyRep training, because doing an intense MyRep set, uh, some people tend to think that you should go to absolute failure when you do MyReps, and I never recommended that. You should manage fatigue. And if you manage fatigue, you can be able to do daily MyRep training with light loads uh, for up to five, six days in a row. But when you start incrementing the loads and getting into heavier loads, um, um, and also when you add volume, which so many people are in, in, intent on doing these days, uh, you accumulate more inflammation and, and uh, connective tissue damage. And, and so you, you need more time to recover from that. So if you want to try high frequency training, make sure that you're making the muscle burn and you're using light loads. And, and you should also consider some, some of those workouts being submaximal with a few reps in reserve. And then as you get into heavier loads, the frequency should drop to accommodate that. So I think for most people, when you're in the like five to 10 rep range, 
and you're doing uh, like uh, one of the more the sweet spot volumes that we've been discussing, then people with ordinary lives and stresses should uh, should stick to like twice a week, maybe three times per week at the most for a muscle group. But I would say closer to two times per week per muscle group for, for those people. So to conclude, I know where Manuel is coming from and I agree completely with him simply because when we, or when I, first of all, and then him later on started talking about this high frequency stuff and based on the Norwegian frequency project and stuff, this was uh, targeted towards advanced lifters that had all their ducks lined up in a row, all their recovery capacities optimized and their circadian rhythm optimized and nutrition and all that stuff. But, and then so that, that's probably just three to 5% of our listeners or our readers. But the other 95 to 97% of the readers that this does not apply to believe or think that they belong to this uh, exclusive club. Yeah. And so that's when problems tend to crop up. It's when people are ahead of themselves and, and don't consider their own um, lifestyle and their own capacities and, and recovery abilities and, and try to apply training methods and, and techniques and, and variables there are beyond their own level and beyond their ability to recover from yeah yeah it's, it's a really hard thing to grasp i think for a lot of us that what the advanced people do i think the way that a lot of us think about that is that they are more serious than us so they think they do things that just work better whereas that's not the case they are more advanced and they just need to push things a lot harder to make anything happen and something like that could be applicable for them but it doesn't mean that it works better than for example training two or three times a week and it actually might be working better for you because you're in that blessed state when you can actually benefit from something more simple like that more so than an advanced lifter so like a central concept that i mentioned over and over again in, in the ssd system is is the concept of hormesis where even applying uh, or ingesting a toxin at, at the correct dose or at a sufficiently low dose it will lead to a positive adaptation and everything you apply to the body in terms of a stressor if it's at the correct dose according to your own capacities and recovery abilities it will lead to a positive adaptation but as you add more of that stressor you get into the toxic range and the maladaptive range where the body is is unable to adapt to that and you just stagnate and at worst regress and get weaker or even injured and and this is what happens when you try to just look at average results from all of these scientific studies and and from whatever these authorities and experts are talking about Yes, they are trying to find what is optimal and leads to the maximal growth rates, but, but this is under certain conditions and certain contexts and for certain people for, cert, for a certain amount of time. But, but on, on, in the long term, if, if you want a sustainable approach, you need to sort of you know, jack all of that down to a more sustainable dose that, that can actually make you, can actually guarantee that you achieve results over the long term. Instead of just always chasing that maximum and being on the on the you know verge of of uh, overdoing stuff all the time and, and and even over actually overdoing it, which uh, a lot of people tend to do, and which is why people are in this group in the first place. So so I mean, what what's the rush? Uh, why do you want to use all of the tools at once instead of just picking the right tool for the right job at the right time and and, and then just trusting the process? And you know, if that wasn't sufficient, if that wasn't enough. Um, I mean, any, any stimulus, if it's beyond a certain minimum threshold, and that minimum threshold is, is actually much lower than most people think, will make you grow, will make you better, will improve. So, so just 
you know, always chasing for a maximum uh, just elevates the risk of of, uh, of injuring yourself or, or losing out. So, so, I mean, if you want to do this for a few years, just, you know, try to find the minimum threshold and, and stay just above that. And I, I don't think you need to try to find the maximum recoverable volume. I, I think it's a worthless marker. It, it only tells you that at that point in time, that was you have accumulated so much fatigue from the volume you have done working up to that point that now you are guaranteed you know you have evidence that all of that stuff you have been doing up to now was too much and, and now you know you, you're not gaining any, anything um, anymore but I, I think a better strategy is just to figure out what how much do I need to invest to get the maximum profits this this is what you do in all areas of your life you find the, the sort of the optimal dose you don't just try to find the maximum uh, in everything um yeah so enough rambling uh, for me uh, we went beyond the, the allotted time here now so uh, it, it just boggles my mind that we have been so programmed to always go for maximum go for gold go for um, you know, just chasing the optimal in, in, in to such a degree that, that we just burn ourselves out. Yeah, it's I guess it always comes back to wanting results yesterday. And um, yeah, a lot of people just need to get out of that mindset. <laughs> but it, I mean, extreme approaches can provide extreme results, but it can also backfire. And it seems as if nine times out of 10, it, it, it just does that. So so especially when it comes to physiology and the body, just, just trying to, you know, to use my favorite uh, analogy, just try, trying to chase the sunburn uh, <laughs> in order to get a suntan is just not a very viable or sustainable way to approach uh, health in the long term. Yeah, well said. Cool. Well, uh, guys, so if this sounds interesting to you and uh, if you're interested in finding that amount, which is pretty much guaranteed to provide results and just find that optimal zone when you're getting most of the benefits for, you know, the minimum but sufficient and almost guaranteed to work type of uh, workload, then you will probably be interested in our training program. Um, and, you know, if you're so passionate about this that you just want to, you know, bet all your horses in one race and uh you know just try to find out what's the most amount that you can do then this is probably not going to be for you because we advocate sustainability over you know chasing short-term results here so something to keep in mind so uh yeah i think uh, we got to the end of this q a so hopefully we've been able to provide you with some good information for you guys so yeah Berge, any closing words uh no i think uh you know we'll most likely have to reduce the frequency of this q a sessions here and and uh now to attend to all of those who uh have um you know so um so willingly and and, and trusting us with uh with their money uh access to to the membership where we're, we're gonna you know we we will answer questions and, and help them on an individual level to to uh, get better results so so my um, my time spent in the SSD Facebook group will have to be limited limited for, for the upcoming week just to make sure that everyone is taken good care of. Yeah. Yeah, over yeah, we'll probably move into like a bi weekly or so schedule or we will we will see what the, the upcoming frequency will be. Uh but hopefully you guys enjoy these weekly Q and A's and um yeah, hopefully 
hopefully you got some nice value out of these. And uh, with that, we want to thank you for your attention. Once again, go to sustainablestealthdevelopment.com to get up to date with everything that we are doing. And if you're curious about this training and nutrition program that we've been plugging like crazy here, uh, because we're really enthusiastic and just stoked that it's finally out or is going to be out real, real soon, then go to sustainablestealthdevelopment.com slash SSD program. So that was our Q&A webinar for today. And with that, we thanks for everyone's attention.